The Shema is a prayer that Jewish people pray every day from present day back to thousands and thousands of years ago to remind them of the centrality and the responsibility of God's people to love God with everything. It was central to their life and for us as New Testament believers seeing the whole scope of Scripture, it was central to Jesus. When Jesus was asked to summarize the Old Testament, he used Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And if you were with us last week, when we started up again in Deuteronomy after a break, we started kind of the second major portion of Moses' sermon, a portion that stretches from Deuteronomy chapter 12 to Deuteronomy chapter 26. And a casual reading of this portion reveals that it's full of laws, case studies, rules, things which sound far less compelling, far less engaging than the heartfelt worship contained in the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's emotions and commands that we can get behind. But what's interesting is as we kind of distance ourselves from that, when we read what reads like legal literature in Deuteronomy 12 through 26, Everything Moses is talking about is actually a detailed explanation of the Shema. Moses is unpacking in detail what it looks like to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And it gets into the details because the gospel changes the details. When the gospel warms our hearts to the good news of Jesus Christ, the details in your life change, and they have to. This is what conversion is. The missionary David Brainerd was one of the first to bring the gospel to the Indians in the New England area. And early on in his ministry, uh, two 50-year-old men from the Native American community were saved. And they confessed faith, and Brainerd baptized them. But Brainerd talked about how anxious he was for them. Because these two men were known in their community as notorious drunkards, violent men, one of them was a known murderer in his town. And yet, by God's grace, both of these men set these sins aside. Their lives were changed. And Brainerd wrote this in his journal. He said, through rich grace, none of them has been left to disgrace by any scandalous or unbecoming behavior. The gospel changed the details. And that's always the case. When we begin and we grow and we start to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might, bit by bit, little by little, never all at once, but our lives are constantly being changed to worship God in new and wonderful ways. And it's this comprehensive and this specific nature of our love for God that we need to bear in mind as we examine what we'll see for the rest of this month, this legal section of Deuteronomy. Because at the very heart of every bit of literature and litigation that Moses is about to preach to his people is the Shema, the love we have for God. In fact, look at Deuteronomy 3, or 13 verse 3. In the middle of Moses' section today, you hear the Shema. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. This text today is first and foremost about what it looks like for you to love God. 
And implicitly what we'll see is what does it look like for you to love others as well? Yet, whether you are in here as a believer or as a non-believer who's just checking out what this is all about, there are going to be things in this text which are jarring to us in our culture, and they were jarring to the Israelites in their culture during this time as well. And as we encounter these words and these commands, we're going to be faced with a tension that has two wrong ends. And wrong end one is to disregard this God as being obsolete, ancient, and foolish. I could never worship a God like this. Option two is to read this text and say, well, this is just the Old Testament. We don't need to worry about this. Jesus fulfilled all of this. This is just stuff Tyler has to get through because we're preaching through Deuteronomy. But in the middle of that is this right spot of the seriousness that this is God's word that we are to wrestle with and that God takes seriously the way in which we love him and we love other people. And here's what we're going to see today in a summary statement, then I'll show you the three points we're going to look at is this, is that there is nothing more serious to God's covenant people than their love for God. If you're a Christian in here today, God takes nothing more seriously than the way in which you love him. And the three ways we're going to see that in Deuteronomy 13 today is we're going to look at the danger of love, the discipline of love, and lastly, we're going to look at the love which we, that's if you are a believer, have known. So before we look at our first point today, Moses kind of gives this prescript. It kind of bridges what we looked at last week in Deuteronomy 12 to what we're going to see in Deuteronomy 13. And this is verses uh, 29 through 32 of Deuteronomy 12. Moses says this, When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, And you dispossess them and dwell in their land. Because remember, Moses is preaching to this people that's about to go into the promised land. And so he's speaking of this conquest of the land here. Verse 30 continues, Take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? That I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they've done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. So, how many of you have already, we are January 5th. How many of you have already failed? You don't have to raise your hand. This isn't shame time yet. Um, We'll get there. Uh, have already failed in some sort of observable way with a New Year's resolution, with a Bible reading plan. And how many of you, when you failed in such an observable way, has had your roommate or your spouse, your workout partner who worked out all by themselves on day two, (laughs) come to you and say, man, how did you pursue your resolutions? Because I want to do the same. And Moses is showing that that's how foolish our hearts are when it comes to pursuing the sin in this world. He cautions God's people. He says, don't even inquire about all these nations, these seven nations that you're going to go into. Don't even ask them how they worship their God. And why shouldn't they? He says, because it's utter foolishness. Moses says, these people have practiced absolutely terrible things. We've looked at the call God has for the blood of the people in Canaan, and it is not unjust. These people are so wicked, they are sacrificing and burning their children 
as sacrifices to pagan gods. And Moses says, they do all of that. And you, you just went in and dispossessed them. You just tore down their altars. You just conquered their temples. And despite their violent and disgust worship practices, their gods did nothing for them. They gave everything and got nothing in return. Why do you want their worship? What is attractive about their foolishness and their demise where you would even care? It seems so dumb. But we, we live in a culture where almost every year, just in America, millions of babies are murdered inside of the womb to the idols of comfort, pleasure, and greed. We live in a world where we've seen it in our own lives, in the lives of our neighbors, their hopes and their temples shattered when wealth, health, and career come crashing down. Yet don't we, even as God's people, often say, how do you worship your gods? How do you get what you want from this world? Why are we so foolish? Why do we struggle with this? It's as the old hymn goes, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. You see, we can talk of love of God all we want. We can even love God all that we want. But love's affection is just as broken as our world. And we can and will wrestle with the same danger of loving things which are not God as the people in Deuteronomy do. Our hearts can be divided in affection. And it's here where we see the first point today is despite all of the wonder, all of the beauty, all of the joy that comes with love, there is a danger that our hearts will want to love what is broken. And we see this and the danger of it present to Israel in the first five verses of Deuteronomy 13. He says this, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives a sign or a wonder, in other words, it's well attested. He's doing something that looks credible. And the sign or wonder, he tells you, comes to pass. And if he says, after he's validated himself, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him, keep his commandments, obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so shall you purge the evil from your midst. So here we see the tension at the heart of Deuteronomy 13, speaking to God's community of covenant people. On one hand, God is fighting for their ardent love with heart and soul towards God. But on the other hand, This case study ends with the destruction of someone who seeks to pull them away. 
And actually in Deuteronomy 13, there are three case studies that Moses gives to the Israelites of what they are to do when certain people or people groups from among them try to pull them away from the God of the Bible, from Yahweh. And we see they know these people. It's, it's not outside threats that we saw in Deuteronomy 12. These are inside threats. The first one in, in verses 1 through um, 5 that we just looked at involves a religious figure, a dreamer, or a prophet who seems to be doing what is right. The second case study in verses 6 through 11, we're not going to look at all these verses in detail, but verses 6 through 11 outlines the one who is near to you, a brother, a son. What Moses says, someone who is near to you as your own soul. And the last one involves an entire city that is calling others to worship gods which are not Yahweh. An entire culture pervasively pressing against you, which is pulling you away from God. And in each instance, to each person, to each threat, to each group, Moses' command to God's people is to destroy the deceiver. And the level of detail that he's including in these case studies goes to show that Moses wants Israel to believe that this will probably happen. This is very plausible. This is not a hypothetical. This is something you need to be prepared for. Now, if we want to understand the nature of what's going on here, we need to first understand the nature of God's community at this time, Israel. We need to understand the nature of the offense, which we'll talk about in a second. Because when it comes to the community and understanding who God is speaking to and what is the, uh, the substance of God's community, it's different than what was the substance of God's community now in the New Testament, in the church. God's people at this time is an ethnic people group. It's Israel, this nation whom God went to Abraham and said, I will bring from you a nation. Your offspring will be the people of Israel. And Israel was called to be physically set apart from the nations by their worship of God. They were to be physically marked off by the act of circumcision. Even the making more of Israelites was to be distinct. They were physically brought out of Egypt by God's mercy. They were to physically live in God's special place, the promised land. They were to physically obey God's representative rulers, whether it was Moses or King David or the prophets. Belonging to God meant belonging to Israel. And so if you were on the outside, you converted not only to God, but to the God of Israel. You converted to circumcision. You converted to Jewish dietary laws. You converted to the whole of the law. But also... To be part of God's covenant people meant that you had, in some way, experienced the wonder-working miracles of this God. It means that you were perhaps one of the few people left at Moses' time of speaking this who crossed over, like Moses himself, the Red Sea. Or you were one who, in the wilderness wanderings, saw God's glory descend on Mount Sinai as a flaming fire. Maybe you heard audibly the voice of this God proclaiming his covenant to his people. Maybe you ate the manna or the quail or everyone who's present here where as soon as they cross the Jordan into the promised land, the Jordan is going to be pushed back by God once more and they're going to walk miraculously across a river. To belong to God's covenant people meant that even if you are born in the land, you still get to go to God's special place, to God's temple where his glory dwelt. You got to see the sacrifices. To be part of God's covenant people meant you were relationally near to this wonderful working God. And because of that relational nearness and that physical distinction, there was a real physical threat in times of disobedience or forgetfulness. 
Just as God is telling Israel that they are to judge and dismiss, conquer, displace the nations in the land, remember what God said to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 18 through 20. You, Israel, shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you, Today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord. Because Israel's corporate identity was the worship of God, individuals who threatened that corporate identity were a threat to the entire community. A failure by one put the entire community in physical danger of judgment, of conquest, and of disease. And so here we begin to see the nature of this offense. How severe it was and how it was to be treated. You saw this, or we'll see this, we'll actually look at it in the context of the one near to them. The close person in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 13. If your brother, the son of your mother, or the son or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some gods are the people who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other. You shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him." Your hand shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. It should make us squirm a little. As someone near, why is Moses being so harsh? Because the danger is so high. This was threat number one. Not to the spiritual hobby of God's people, but to their very life. Now, it's important here to notice what Moses isn't saying. Moses isn't saying, destroy the person who's wrestling with doubt. He doesn't say, destroy the person who took your seat at church. Destroy the person who is repentant and convicted, but wrestling with holiness. There's strong circumstances that Moses calls for this capital punishment. He's telling to destroy the people who say this, and you see this in all three instances of these case studies. Let us go and serve other gods, gods which you have not known, gods of the people around you, gods of this world. And both of these words, go and serve, are not words of inquisition or exploration. They're words of devotion. The word go, this Hebrew word, carries with it not only this idea of direction, but actually of imitation. Of go in walking as they walk. And the word serve here is translated in other places as just worship. So let's make something clear here. The people whom Moses are talking about are Israelites from among God's people who are blatantly calling either in public or in secret people away from the worship of Yahweh 
and to the worship of other gods. This sin is the sin of insurrection, of what Moses calls it rebellion in the face of a covenant-keeping God. That idea of covenant has been so big throughout Deuteronomy because Moses is always reminding Israel of their failures, but he says, but God has made a covenant to you. God is going to be faithful to you, and you are going to respond to God's covenant. In fact, when God went to Abraham, he made a covenant and said, I will be your God, one part of the covenant. You will be my people, other part of the covenant. These people aren't just friends with God. They are in a covenant with him. So to really understand the scandal of this, let me put it this way. Imagine you're in a Bible study, you and your spouse, and it's a Bible study consisting of predominantly other married couples where you all have the same experience of marriage. And afterwards, a man comes up and he says, Tyler, I found this group of ladies. They're gorgeous. Their bodies are out of this world and they are so eager to satisfy whoever goes to them. Why don't you come with me and I'll introduce you. And I'm sure that they will make you content in ways that Sarah never could. Aren't, there, aren't you guys awkward with me just saying that? <laughs> like as I wrote this, I'm like, I can't say this. <laughs> Why? Because to even speak of it as a hypothetical is an offense to the covenant I've made with my wife. It is so pure, so wonderful, so sacred that to speak even hypothetically of impurity or or turning away makes us disgusted. And yet... That relationship that you may have experienced or that you have seen in this world doesn't even compare to the relational nearness of God's covenant to his people. In fact, in the New Testament, we see that the beauty of that covenant between man and woman is only a shadow of the beauty of the covenant between Christ and his church. But this is the disgusting nature of sin. It does not call us away from a cultural identifier. It calls us away from the God who has covenanted himself to us and us to him. And you will have people and cultures in your world, in this world, who will speak to you such disgusting rebellion veiled in cultural language. And Moses is saying, be prepared. Be prepared. And then he commands this, that those deceivers, those dissenters, those apostates must be put to death. Why? (laughs) Because there was nothing more serious than this. For the nation of Israel, this was very literally, not just spiritually, this was life or death. The result of loving God is so important and so severe, and the danger of loving other gods is so real that even if you have a brother or is one who is like your own soul who comes and says, you can still worship God, but love other things, destroy them. Put them out. You must 
not worship God in that way. Such a person is not only a threat to you, but a threat to the entire community of Israel. And you see this because after every action of putting this person to capital punishment, there's a corporate benefit. In verse 5, it says that when this action is done, you have purged the evil from your midst. You have cleansed a community that had a disease. Verse 11 says that it helps other people not commit that sin. It preserves the life of your brother and sister because they see the danger of sin. And they say, it's not worth it. And then in verses 17 through 18, it says that such actions remind and and steward the blessing and promise of God to multiply and to provide mercy. Because the sin preyed on God's community, God's community's right response to that sin actually worked to the health of that community. So, what do we do? We aren't Israel. Jesus has come and fulfilled the law. We see no commands in the New Testament to go and put apostates to death. So does this mean we just disregard this passage? That we are unconcerned if people are wandering away? That to each his own? That we can love God in whatever way we see fit? Quite the opposite. In fact, the Apostle Paul uses 1 Corinthians chapter 13 directly as a point of application in 1 Corinthians, which is, I believe, the book that dedicates the most amount of words to love. He brings 1 Corinthians 13 in the midst of the church. Our application of 1 Corinthians 13 is church discipline. And this is where we see our second point today, the discipline of love. And many of you are hoping to see right now the doors. (laughs) Because this isn't what we want to see. This isn't what we want to talk about. If we wanted to talk about the love of God, many of us don't run to a passage on capital punishment. Less of us run to a passage on church discipline. And yet this is God's word to us. This is for our good as difficult and perhaps inciting as it is to our own comforts and our own understandings. God knows us and our needs better than we know our needs. And just about every mainstream idea in our culture would cringe at such ideas of love. A large subsect of what is called Christian in today's world will cringe at this idea of love. But hear Moses' words. Do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve that I might worship in that way? You shall not worship God in this way. We don't listen to culture's definition of love. We listen to God's definition of love. This isn't new. It wasn't new in the time of Israel, this tension. It's not new now. It wasn't new even when Jonathan Edwards was writing. And he says this, Whatever ways of constituting the church may may seem to us fit, proper, and reasonable, the question is not what constitution of Christ's church seems convenient to human wisdom, but what constitution is actually established by Christ's infinite wisdom. You see, when it comes to love, when it comes to community, our world uses those words, but it's only God who defines them. 
Everyone else plays with shadows, but the God, the speaking God who created the world, plays with the substance. This, how we respond to this, is just the same thing that Moses meant it to be to Israel. This, and your commitment to it, is a test of your love for God. If we so easily want to push past this, we are choosing to say we love things other than God. This is weighty for us to look at. And with this in mind, let's look at how Paul uses this passage. In 1 Corinthians 5, we'll look at two parts, verses 1 and 2 and verses 6 through 13. So this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. Don't you hear Moses already? They even sacrifice their kids. And Paul's saying, pagans don't even do this. For a man has his father's wife. And are you arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Skip down to verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning, hear this, the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. That is, to avoid them, you minimize evangelism. But I am now writing to you, that is the church, not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother, Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So here we have this church in Corinth, and there's this man who has entered into a romantic sexual relationship with his mother. Unrepentantly so. And Paul shows the danger of this to the whole church. I actually skipped verses, I skipped, I think it should be in the, what we read there, but Paul says this, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us set the, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, he's saying, just as a little leaven rises a whole loaf, so a little sin of this nature can fell the whole church. There is immense danger here. And his solution is let this man be removed from among you. And in summary, he quotes Deuteronomy 13, purge the evil person from among you. Does this mean that as a church, that no one can come who's wrestling with sexual immorality or greed or drunkenness or a swindler or a reviler? No. Paul even cautions against that. Jesus says, I didn't come to heal the well. I came to heal the sick. If you struggle with these things, this is exactly where you need to be because nothing in this world can heal you except for the gospel. And so we're so glad you're here. But we want you to see the danger of that sin in the long run. 
and how it doesn't come from you changing your actions, but from Christ changing your heart. But what we need to do is look at, just as we did in Deuteronomy 13, the nature of this community and the nature of its offense. Because the nature of belonging to the church is different than it was in belonging to Israel, and that it's not, namely, a physical marker. If you physically come into this building, you physically sit in that chair, you hear this sermon, you sing the songs, you maybe post on Facebook physical things, it is not that you belong to this church physically by any physical participation. You don't belong physically to God's people by what you physically do. Instead, God's community is spiritual in the church. You belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else. It is through Christ and Christ alone that you are brought into God's people. And this is something that was hard for the New Testament church to get, and it's still hard for us today. Conversion, not cultural immersion, is the mark of God's church. Conversion, spiritual change. Our churches today, this church includes people from all places and backgrounds and walks with God, believers, new believers, old believers, non-believers. But to truly belong to the community of faith is to be converted spiritually by believing and by repenting. Believing the gospel and repenting of your sins. And at Sovereign Hope and at many churches in the West, this line of demarcation is humanly quantified to the best of our broken ability by church membership. Church membership makes visible this covenant reality with Jesus. Church membership is for those who say, I've experienced that. I've experienced firsthand that I was dead in my sin and Christ came to save me in love, which we just read earlier today, uh, Ephesians 2, 4, in love, Christ did all of this for me in my brokenness. He has changed my heart. He has given me his righteousness. He has died for my sins. And my baptism now responds to this, that I've been buried with Christ and raised with Christ. And now I spend the rest of my life living for Christ. And that's why we publicly affirm our church members at our member meetings. We present a testimony of a believer, and the rest of the church says and affirms with them, and they say, yes, we see that. We see that you do not find belonging in Christ in what you have done or where you go to church or what your background was or what your skin color is. We see you belong to Christ because he has converted you through the gospel. And we welcome you into this community to live and love this Jesus forever. So the covenant community in the New Testament does not consist of those who are marked by the blood of circumcision. Instead, it consists of those who are marked by the blood of Christ. Is that you? Have you considered what it is you identify as your means of belonging to Jesus? Is it what you have done in some sort of cultural circumcision? Going to church, tithing a lot, not saying bad words? Or is it what Christ has done? And that you've responded to his sacrifice for your sins? And this is so important because who Paul is talking about here is he's not talking about an outsider. He's talking about an insider. Look at 1 Corinthians 5.1. It starts out just as Deuteronomy 13 does. It says, I, it, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. The problem is already within. The problem is from one who claimed to have experienced this life-changing covenant of Jesus. 
and the danger of this offense, the nature of this offense is that if this man continues, it will destroy everything. If this man continues, not only, only will there be a woman who is perpetually sinned against, but it means that those who are inside the church and those who are outside the church will see this man and say, that's what it means to follow Jesus. And there are all sorts of ways that that can damage Christ's reputation, the health of the church, and the eternal souls of those who are around. And the more that persists, little by little, the more the affection of our hearts will follow the sin. Sin left unchecked will always cause our hearts to follow it. It has the potential to not only destroy the community, but to destroy the person caught in sin. And Paul's response is straight from Deuteronomy 13. What do you do? What would we do? Paul says, purge the evil person from your midst. There's no call to kill. Jesus fulfilled that. Jesus was killed so that we might have grace. But Paul says there's a point in church discipline where the church as a whole needs to say to this sinner and to the church, this man is not a follower of Jesus. Why? Who gets the right to say that? What have we seen now three times in the last two weeks in Deuteronomy? Moses says, you cannot worship God in this way. God decides what a Christian is, and we obey God. Now, Paul here is talking about the final step in church discipline, a step that's often called excommunication. At this point, what would happen, so I'll use the example of our church where we have membership, and we have a, a list of people who are on that. Should we uh, remove the person from membership, we would remove their name from the member role as a sort of symbol of saying this, of saying, brother, sister, you are no longer counted as one of the Lord's sheep. Because the Lord's sheep do not act in unrepentant sin like this. And this is the power that Jesus actually gives the church in Matthew 18, 18, where he says, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. So this is the end step, the final step, but this is not the first step of church discipline. In Matthew 18, Jesus outlines other steps, like if there is a sinner and you know it, you go to that person in private. You say, dear brother, what is going on in your life? And 99.9% of all issues that could escalate, escalate to excommunication are dealt with here. Because that's all we need sometimes. We need the help of a brother and sister to wake us up to what we're doing, which is dangerous. But if, that, if the person still persists in sin, is still unrepentant, Paul says, get two or three other brothers and sisters and go to that person and say, look, we're here because this is awkward, but this is serious. Your eternal life is at stake here. If Jesus has saved you, this is not how we're to act. He's given you the Holy Spirit to act differently and distinctly, to choose what is right and cling to what is good. And if that doesn't work, Paul says to bring it to the church the collective body of believers, so they might pray and they might plead that that salvation which they affirmed, that profession that this person once said would bear fruit and they would repent and they would see the folly and they would invite people and say, I need help in the midst of my brokenness. But when those options are exhausted, 
God has drawn a line that he has called the church itself to draw. Where we ought to let that person be, Jesus says to us, as a tax collector or a Gentile, that is to treat them as a non-believer. And it's to be done slowly, prayerfully, with great tears. Because we are not just saying a designation in title has happened. We are saying that three weeks ago, I thought Jesus had saved you unto life. But today I see you are in danger of eternal damnation. And that is a weighty thing for the church to do. But it is a biblical thing for the church to do. And the truth is it's God's grace that we run into this text because God needs to prepare us for this. In my time here, since 2011, we've never had such a case of discipline as this. Like I said, most of our discipline gets caught in step one or step two. We don't even have any of these things in the queue. But what I do know is if we are a church who loves evangelism, who loves bringing broken people into the wonderful news of Jesus, our church will experience the brokenness of sin. It is a sign of health, not of unhealth, that these things happen and are confronted in a biblical way. It is a sign of God's grace. But we, you, if you're a member at Sovereign Hope, need to be prepared to understand how this is loving and how this is good. Because the truth is, this sounds terrible to culture. This is the epitome of what is unloving, what is narrow-minded, what is not tolerant. But the truth is, our culture is king of discipline like this. No one disciplines by excommunication more than culture. Think of it in our, can- our cancellation culture right now, where the princes and queens of the media get to decide in an instant who they get to cast out, shame, isolate, and banish. Whoever doesn't keep the party line, you're done. You're blacklisted. You're drugged through the mud. And there's no way back. Our culture thrives on purging dissenters. I made the mistake of watching Dick Clark's New Year's Eve special for like 20 minutes on Tuesday night. And uh, in it, there was this singer who sang a song. Uh, that's what singers do. And they, he said this. These are the lyrics. Self-love is the solution. Be part of this revolution. You're the only one you need. You won't need anyone else. All you've got to do is love yourself. Always remember who you are. This sounds great to culture. But you know what he says next? In all of his happy, jazzy, glimmering dancing, don't let anyone get in your way. That's what culture says. And it happens every day. Everyone knows when what is evil or unsightly needs to be put out, and everyone does it. How many times did you see this week someone posting on Facebook, I'm going to get rid of all the negative people in my life? Can you imagine if Jesus said that? (laughs) But we bathe it in this spiritualism. So what's the difference? The gospel. One discipline seeks to eternally damn. The other seeks to, by God's grace, give life. Years later, Paul would write to this same church, and it would appear 
that this wicked, unrelenting sinner repented. And what does Paul say? 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 7. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. That's the corporate nature of sin. It hurts all of us. For such a one, this one is the man from 1 Corinthians, the punishment by the majority is enough. The majority, the church gathered, it voted to put out this person in accordance to Jesus' teaching. But what does Paul say now? So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Have any of you seen in any social media, any news standing, someone who has recanted of their typified position, faced the shame, came back and been treated like an equal citizen? No. But in the church, the gospel creates this reality. I've talked to so many pastors who have gone through these hard steps of church discipline. Sometimes when you're in church discipline, people, like, they, 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 th- they think, it's funny, they think that elders just sit in elder meetings, they're like, who do we get a discipline today? Like, this is something we like to do. No one likes this. We are human too. But we are humans beheld to God's wonderful word. And there have been times where after pleading over months and years, There have been churches I know who have put out this person stuck in their sin because they didn't repent. But some, not all, have come years. I talked to a buddy recently where decades down the road, the person they put out came back and the church restored them. And they celebrated the wonderful miracle of salvation by grace alone. That Jesus took away their sins. And because Jesus took away their sins, Jesus has given them to the church just as any of us have been given to the church by grace. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to issues like loving God, your eternity is at stake. There is nothing more serious than the way your heart responds to God, which means If someone loves you and loves God, they will face the awkward relational pressure of leaning into your sin because there is nothing more important than your salvation. We are not after a social club. We are not after a community of good belonging. We are after the gospel, which is salvation to those who are perishing. This is life and death. Which is why we need to cling to what we know. This is the last point. The love which we have known. If you recall in Deuteronomy 13, if you look at it over the course of this week, each of the three case studies, the deceiver says the same thing. Let us go and serve gods which you have not known. And in the face of what is unknown, the temptation of what is unknown, the allure of what might be new or trendy or cultural. Moses says this, stick to what you know. You see that in verse four. He says, in the face of temptation, don't listen to the preacher of apostasy. Instead, listen to this, walk after God, fear him, keep his commands, obey his voice, serve him, hold fast to him, cling to God. 
Your hope in a world which will throw the one nearest to your soul at you to drag you to hell. Cling to God. Cling to what it is that you have known. What does that look like? Well, there are three implications just in closing here that we can do to know this love, the love that we have known in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's this. First, know the voice of the gospel. Know what the gospel sounds like. In our media-saturated world, we have been given countless hours of teaching from the Bible available to us at the click of a button, and we want to hijack that and use that to God's glory. But so much of what is preached under the name of Christianity is fool's gold and a false gospel. Just because someone uses gospel language or Jesus talk, don't assume they preach Christ. They are wolves. They are serpents. They are not dumb. And that's not to say I have the exclusive gospel. That's to say Jesus does. And he's given it to us freely, openly, in plain language, tests what you hear. Paul says this, he says, uh, Christ, the gospel is this, how do you assess things that you're hearing? Christ died for my sins. If you don't hear that, no matter how many times they talk about Jesus, no matter how many times they talk about love, no matter how many times they use the Bible, they are not preaching the gospel. Paul says this in Galatians chapter one. Look at the severity of what Paul says. But if we, that is the apostles, Preach, or we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one which we preach. Let him be accursed. Don't listen. If I someday preach a gospel that does not match Christ's gospel, kick me out. There's a great documentary I just watched with some friends this week called The American Gospel. It's a great resource for you to watch with your neighbors, with your community group that helps you understand the truth and the lie in much of America's contemporary Christianity. We must learn to hear the voice of the true gospel because we do not preach the only gospel. We preach the only true gospel. Second, know the love of a true brother or sister in Christ. Know the love of a true brother and sister in Christ. Here Moses highlights someone as near to you as your own soul who seeks to bring you away from Christ. How much more should our church be typified by brothers and sisters who seek to drag us to Christ? Who seek to come to us in our weaknesses and pull us to the place we don't want to go. Pull us into the light of repentance. If you don't have people in your life who can speak to you and sometimes ways that feel more like discipline than buddy-buddy, then you're actually limiting your love for God and you're limiting God's community to love you. When you think of the friends you have, the brothers and sisters in Christ, in your community group, in your church, are you willing to face awkward moments because eternity is worth it? We're called to do this together. There is a priesthood of believers the New Testament talks about, which means your elders or the Catholic confession box are not the places where the battle against sin is to be fought. It's to be fought here in the body of Christ. 
And lastly, don't just know the voice of the gospel, don't just know the true love of brothers and sisters, but know the truth of Jesus' love. You see, it's easy to look at passages like this and see Jesus and to see his church and to think of it as something controlling and harsh, but these passages don't remind us as much of God's wrath, though they do, as much as it reminds us of God's grace. Because the truth is, none of us start as the Israelite being led astray. All of us start as the Deuteronomy 13 defector, the deceiver, the liar. Paul says this in Romans chapter 3. What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. Quoting the Old Testament, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Let us go and follow other gods. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God from before their eyes. The first point of application in this text is to not fear being put under church discipline. The first point of application is to fear God's discipline. We have a problem. We deserve death. We were the enemy. But in the gospel, Jesus makes a way for grace. Grace which was promised in Deuteronomy. Grace which is fulfilled on the cross. Grace where the death that happens doesn't have to be your own. Grace where Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the one nearer to God than even the brother like our own soul would be to us was offered as a sacrifice for you, for broken sinners, for those who were far off, for those whose throats were an open grave, for those who had been bitten by the venom of the asp of sin. Christ has come in love to save us. And just as humanity was joined to sin, Paul says those who are redeemed are joined to Christ. Right after this in Romans 3, 23, Paul says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24 says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here is why we cannot ignore Deuteronomy 13. Here's why we cannot neglect church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18. Because to lose the weight of those texts is to lose an understanding of God's love for you in Jesus. To belittle that belittles Jesus. To belittle that limits God's love. This is the God whom you have known in your salvation. What other God can do this? What other God has done this? Why would you need another one? Why would you ask around? Look, have any of those other gods loved you like this God has claimed to love his people? Have any of those others saved you, spanned the distance that Jesus did in love for you? 
Have any of them promised life so visibly, so powerfully, that it raised a man from the grave after dying for your sins? No one loves you like God loves his people through Jesus. And because of that, we have hope upon hope upon hope how in the temptations of life, in the hard stances of life, in the leaning in of sin in life, we can rejoice for we are loved by Jesus. He has given to us more than the world has offered. And we can have peace because of it. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, these are weighty words, words which make me feel weak in preaching them, words which make us queasy in practicing them, words which irritate our soul when hearing them, and the only way that this makes sense is when the nearness of your love in the gospel orients our life. Lord, we all needed to be purged, but Christ was purged for us. So cause us to respond to that sacrifice in faith, in love, and in the practice of God's community that he has prescribed for us in his word. Lord, I pray today that this text causes us to fear sin so much that we do not want to hide it. But then we want to bring it out to God's community of grace and we want to deal with it in the light of God's redeeming salvation and rejoice that there is grace because of Jesus. And Lord, we pray for us as a church. If and when in our future where it would please you to bring one of these cases into our midst. Give us love greater than this world. Strengthen our knees in the gospel and give us hope. We pray this in your name. Amen.